0: How do you know who you are if you don't understand where you come from?
1: A few months ago, my grandmother told me an old family legend about an ancestor who tried to assassinate the King of England, and it didn't go well. So he fled to the American continent, and Grandma could trace a connection from him all the way down the line to me. This is the kind of story that makes family history so exciting, this vicarious thrill. Attempted regicide? That's in the blood running through my veins? What do the roots of my family tree really have to say about me sitting out here on the high branches? The stories we claim from our past can tell us a lot about how we like to envision ourselves now. But what do we do with stories that don't flatter us? Nora Krug is a German-American author and illustrator who became obsessed with her family's role in World War II.
0: Often people ask me, so what did your grandfather do during the war under the regime? And the truth is that it's incredibly difficult to really know.
1: But Nora had to know how complicit was her grandfather with the Nazi regime. Welcome to Fireside, I'm Blair Hodges. In this episode, we're talking with Norr Krug about her graphic memoir, Belonging, A German Reckons with History and Home. It's a story of personal reckoning and national reckoning about the Holocaust, and it has implications for every single one of us.
0: How do you define yourself when there aren't positive, heroic stories that are passed on from generation to generation, but, you know, shameful stories? What does that mean for your understanding of who you are as a family?
1: Fireside with Blair Hodges is the place to fan the flames of your curiosity about life, faith, and culture. This is episode one, Belonging with Nora Krug. Nora Krug, welcome to Fireside. Thanks for being here.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: I read your book, Belonging, A German Reckons with History and Home, and I couldn't put it down. Congratulations on such an amazing book. I can't wait to share this with listeners.
0: Thank you so much.
1: So let's dig into it here. This book, it's sort of a memoir and a graphic novel here. When people think about graphic novels, or when I thought about graphic novels, I would imagine some fantasy or like superhero stuff. But you're using this medium, a comic medium, to address one of the most shocking human catastrophes in history. So I'm interested how you describe your book to people when you talk about a graphic novel that's about something so difficult.
0: Yes, I usually refer to it as a graphic memoir because it is nonfiction, but it is a book that talks about the Second World War and my own German family heritage. The images and the words really go together as one visual unity and they basically both push the narrative forward to an equal degree.
1: And these images include old photographs that you found, historical objects. So as people go through the book, they're introduced to the story through material objects as well as through illustrations. So it's not just a book of like cartoons. Have you had to face any misunderstanding about what it means to draw and to illustrate as you've done such a serious work using that medium?
0: I haven't uh, had any challenges from readers about this. I mean, I think ever since *Mouse* came out, there has been an acceptance of the fact that serious topics and also topics around the Holocaust, you know, are allowed to be told with images and not just words. And what was important to me, though, for this project was that I was going to move away from the more traditional graphic novel format of panels and speech bubbles, because I wanted the book to feel more like a visual diary, because it describes my process of trying to find out what happened in my family under the Nazi regime. And I wanted the reader to come on this journey with me, basically, and to experience some of these very uh, visceral moments and materials that I found along the way that have an archival quality. And so I wanted to include them in addition to my own drawings. I wanted to include those archival and found materials in the book.
1: And for people who are wondering, you mentioned *Mouse*. It's a graphic novel about the Holocaust, and the characters are all mice. I forget the name of the author.
0: Art Spiegelman.
1: Art Spiegelman. That's right. So, as we mentioned, your book introduces readers to a series of German objects, these physical objects that help tell the story, and you sketch them into a notebook of a homesick emigre, is what you call these pages. And you actually open the book this way. The first one's on the first page. It's called a Hansaplast, which is kind of a bandage. Brand. Why begin here with this bandage?
0: The idea of integrating these uh, kind of encyclopedic pages throughout the narrative was that I wanted to uh, give the reader an impression of the kinds of objects or memories that to me became more and more important as I was working on the book. I've been living abroad for uh, almost 20 years now, and I have been realizing that there are certain objects or places or experiences that I miss and that I would also define as German in, uh, you know, in in a particular way or, 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 you know, experiences or objects that I think a lot of Germans living abroad would be drawn to or would feel like they're missing. And so I decided to create uh, a series of encyclopedic pages where I drew these objects or experiences and then juxtaposed the images with a text explaining what they are in a kind of encyclopedic fashion. And I wanted to break up the family narrative throughout the book by inserting these uh, these encyclopedic pages in between, but always at moments where they made sense for the narrative. Because I thought that these pages could help the reader get out of the personal uh, narrative and away from the the personal subjective and think about the subject on a more collective level, and then re-enter the family narrative that's specific to me. And so the first object that I portray at the beginning of the book, as you mentioned, is Hansaplast, which is one of the most traditional band-aid plasters uh, in Germany. And, you know, I've noticed over the years that it's just very <laughs> reliable because it doesn't come off easily. And so I write about this band-aid and what it means to me. But I also use it as a symbol for um, something that covers up the wound, something that needs to eventually be torn off so that we can inspect the scar. And that is, um, you know, exactly what my book is about.
1: And taking off that bandage, you write to In in fact, I'll just quote it. It says, it is the most tenacious bandage on the planet, and it hurts when you tear it off to look at your scar. So I felt like you were warning readers a little bit at the outset that there might be some pain involved in this book here.
0: Yes, and some introspection and reflection.
1: Everybody can think of objects like this from their past, that when you encounter them, they take you right back to being a child. I think objects like this can be like little time machines.
0: Yeah, I think objects are really carriers of history and of histories and stories and the stories that we grow up learning uh, or being told and then, you know, go on telling our children or the next generation And they have a deep emotional meaning for us, I think, I mean, independently of any culture you come from. But I also think that they associate a sense of safety and security that I personally also associate with the term of of belonging. Uh, I mean, which is the central theme, obviously, of the book, which is why it's called belonging. But I think these objects, to me, also communicate an idea of, of safety. I think often we associate the sense of belonging with a sense of safety or being understood
1: And as we're going early in the book, you're describing your childhood a bit as haunted, I think, by something from the past that that you couldn't quite grasp. How big of a part did the war play in your concept of what it means to be German?
0: Um, I think it played a huge role, Um, even though my parents didn't talk to me specifically about it when I was a child. I mean, before I learned about it in school. I always, I picked up, you know, as children do, I picked up the fact that there had once been a war. I mean, there had been many on German soil, but this one was always the one that was referred to as the war, because it was the most present, I think, in people's minds. And I also picked up early on the fact that this was a war in which we played a bad part, you know, something that we're still ashamed of something that can't ever happen again. And at the beginning of the book, I feature a photograph of myself as I think a one or two year old child sitting in my parents' backyard. And you can see hovering right above my head is a, a US military airplane, because our backyard faced the uh, American air base that was um, located in my hometown in southern Germany at the time. And it was basically the in, you know, quotation marks, occupying forces, the people who I understood as a child were here to make sure that we don't do again, whatever the terrible thing was that we had done once before. So this is something I understood early on before even learning about the war in detail.
1: And you talk about how there's a word that you knew before you even knew about the Holocaust, you knew the word concentration schlager or uh, pardon my German pronunciation, but talk a little bit about that kind of awareness.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were certain words that were, I don't know if they were pronounced in whispers, or if that's just my recollection in retrospect, but words that I felt early on, again, uh, were uncomfortable words, and this word, Konzentrationslager, was one of them, and in my childish mind, I, you know, I didn't know what those places were, but I, I understood that there were sinister places. And I concluded that they were so bad because um, people were forced to concentrate really hard, you know, people who lived there. I mean, it was all I could come up with as a as a young child when hearing this word. I mean, there are many words that I talk about in the book that are part of German culture that reflect on the war and our attempt of, you know, making amends That uh, that are so specifically German and that... I thought about a lot and tried to pick apart in the book.
1: And you say that when you were younger and and you would travel outside of Germany that your guilt would travel with you in some sense. You would have a German accent, for example. You could be identified as German. Talk a little bit about that feeling that you carried with you.
0: Yes, so that I had many experiences traveling as a German. When when people found out I was German, I was often greeted with Heil Hitler. I mean, this happened in England and in Japan. And of course, I was often confronted with negative stereotypes, understandably, by people abroad about my country and my culture. And it's a difficult thing to grow up with as a teenager, because as a teenager, you're already insecure about your identity and who you should become or want to become, And there's also a generational aspect, you know, do you want to become like your parents or do you want to become the opposite? And, you know, in tandem with that, Germans of my generation grew up with a national identity crisis that went along with that personal one throughout those vulnerable teenage years. So we didn't know, and I think still don't know, who we should be as Germans. And there was no sense of national pride. We didn't grow up learning traditional folk songs. We never sang the national anthem. Uh, We never displayed the German flag. And I think, you know, a critical mindset towards one's country and one's, um, you know, a sense of patriotism is is very, very important. But I think in Germany, it happened to such a degree that we were left without any sense of of cultural pride. And I think that can be really disorienting for a young person growing up in that country. And And it can lead to all kinds of uh it ha- it can have long term effects uh such as you know right wing sentiments later on where people then say oh i'm tired of not of not be, you know i'm tired of us always having to be the bad guys and mm-hmm. having to feel guilty and that that i think is a is a problematic side effect of not being allowed any sense of cultural pride
1: yeah i'm picking up on that tension as you're talking about it like when you say you say, understandably, uh, people would have these stereotypes, but at the same time, noticing there can be negative side effects. And you mentioned today, we're still dealing with this. I think in the United States, uh, we see this, especially with with racism and with, with after effects of slavery and reconstruction and things like that. The South will rise again and Confederate flags and, and Southern pride and these kind of things. And we see reemergence of that kind of sentiment and... It seems like in Germany that, that that possibility obviously exists as well as we've seen in, in recent years.
0: Yeah, I think it exists in any country in the world. I mean, there is racism everywhere in the world. There is anti-Semitism everywhere in the world. Minorities are attacked everywhere in the world. And we need to be really, really careful and not assume that once we've reached a level of, you know, so-called democracy, that we can take it for granted. We can't. It's something we have to recognize as a process. We have to continuously defend it. Uh, And I agree with you that in America... Uh, Not enough work has been done even institutionally, I mean not even talking about a personal level, but institutionally in facing slavery and contemporary racism and also the mistreatment of Native Americans and I think that that much more work needs to be done on both sides of the ocean.
1: There's a story early on here where you talk about one of your very first encounters in New York City where you're on the rooftop of a friend's apartment building and you had just moved there uh, From Berlin to study you didn't know anybody and there was an elderly woman sitting in a lounge chair out there who asked you where you were from and you said I'm from Germany and she said that's what I thought
0: yes and of course I was at that point already familiar with that kind of um, response I mean I was in my early 20s so immediately I felt my heart you know sink and I knew that there was an issue (laughs) with the fact that I was German And then she went on to tell me about herself and about the fact that she had survived um, the concentration camp and in fact had been more or less saved out of the gas chamber uh, 16 times at the last moment by a very violent and brutal German prison guard, a female prison guard, who was cruel to everybody else in the camp, but who somehow had taken a liking to this young girl And managed to convince, I found out later, because I met this woman again 16 years later, actually, managed to convince Josef Mengele, the terrible doctor who who worked at Auschwitz concentration camp. And she was able to convince him each time that she should be not one of the ones to go into the gas chambers. So this woman told me that. And of course, I didn't know how to respond as a German, uh, because, you know. I mean, apologizing would have seemed so, I mean, of course, I felt terribly sorry, but that's not an appropriate word to say to somebody like that. So, uh, you know, we just stood up there for a little bit longer. And then she finally said, "Um, you seem like you grew up in a household with loving parents, and I'm sure Germany has changed. And then, you know, I didn't see her again for 16 years and finally tracked her down again and met with her again in the same house and had a very, very warm uh, lunch with her mm. and found out more about her personal experience uh, of the Holocaust.
1: And as I'm reading you write about these stories and looking at your images, I'm pulled in multiple directions because obviously my heart goes out to the to the woman who experienced the Holocaust in that way, but I'm also then drawn to you and to your to your anxiety or your guilt or some of the difficult things that you would go through just because you were uh, German and I'm pulled in multiple directions here which is tricky because I wonder like does it seem does it feel self indulgent at all to explore the sorrow and the difficulty of being on the wrong end of german stereotypes it's like well germans were the aggressors in the war we need to really attend to the most vulnerable and to the victims and survivors and things but it's also been hard on germans too that's probably not the most popular slogan, right? It's been hard on Germans, too. That's You're not going to see that on T-shirts, I don't think.
0: Well, I think that was my biggest challenge uh, when writing and illustrating the book. What I really, really wanted to avoid was for the book to come across as uh, a way of victimizing Germans, of making it seem as if I was downplaying the German involvement in the war. Um, this book is not about the suffering of Germans. I think the trauma that Germans experienced during the war and under the Nazi regime was a self-imposed trauma. I mean, that's something that's very clear to me. Germans voted for Hitler, and they supported him until the end. That is just a fact. I mean, of course, there was also a German resistance movement and everything is much, much more complex than it's often portrayed. There were Germans who were against Hitler and resisted in various ways. There were, you know, German Christians married to Jewish Germans. You never think about that kind of um, setup when talking about the Germans. Uh, You know, often there's this distinction made, the Germans versus the Jews, and it's just too simple. But that said, the majority of Germans supported Hitler and voted for him in a legal manner, basically. And so, you know, I'm not debating that. Uh, and the book is not about the German suffering. It's just about what it means to live with the legacy of the Nazis' atrocities as a German of my generation. And also trying to found, find out what happened in my family, because I realized how important it is to face these questions, not only on a, on an institutional level, but also on a personal one. <laughs>
1: Here in the book, there's a page from your ninth grade exercise book, uh, and this is where you can see this yellow Star of David, which you drew uh, to illustrate the story on the Holocaust. And your mother would talk to you about how people were forced to look at bodies of the murdered, and you had school field trips to concentration camp museums, and you, it seems like you're kind of chronicling things even even as a child. I mean, here's an example of your art. You're, you're using art to, as, a, as a ninth grader to process these things.
0: Yes. So when I worked on the book, I became curious in retrospect about how we learned about the the Holocaust. So I looked at my old history books, and I also went into my old school, you know, exercise books that my parents kept for some reason in their basement. (laughs) And so
1: (laughs) I'm glad they did. And so
0: I suddenly saw all these illustrated pages. I don't know if that was part of the assignment at the time to create an illustration for an essay we had to write. Uh, I mean, there is this tradition of illustrating essays in school books that I also talked to when featuring my uncle's school books, who became a member of the SS later on and died in Italy as a soldier. So I wanted to also reflect that um, parallelity between my illustrated school books and his. But um, yes, yeah, so this page shows the um, Uh, you know, the the yellow star that I drew um, on that day. And it also features a uh, speech by Adolf Hitler, the actual worksheet that I had in school where I analyzed his speech almost word by word. And I myself was struck by how almost obsessive this analysis was. I mean, the entire sheet is marked with different colors and different... And this, this, to me, showed so greatly how... I mean, it was a different way of indoctrination, but that was definitely necessary, how deeply we were asked to reflect on on our country's sins, basically, as children learning about it in school.
1: That page is really unbelievable when I saw that. You're right. I mean, it seems like every single word receives analysis. It's this printout of a Hitler speech, and you've you've highlighted it with all these different colors. Your Your assignment is to lay out his mode of reasoning and intention and explain how he's using language not as though he's a hero, but almost as a warning uh, about the power of words. Exactly.
0: And that's why I think it would be so great if, uh, you know, we did that... At American schools, too, you know, if we took a president's speech, there are some interesting recent examples, but, um, you know, and and analyzed the words that are used and the power of those words. And I mean, language is always the beginning of violence. And I think that's why we were asked to pay such attention to it in school.
1: It's beautiful here. For example, here you say being fault free was our universal goal. Our teachers' red pan marks divided our exercise books into right and wrong, and the red marks felt as reassuring in their clarity as they were unforgiving.
0: Yes, that's how I felt.
1: <laughs> Following that part of the book, you introduce us to the German word Heimat, and I'll have you grab a copy of your book because I'd like you to read the definition of that, and this spread is absolutely beautiful, so if you could read that definition... And describe the art that you've included here and what you've done. I just want to give people a sense of what's happening here. And obviously Heimat is also where the title belonging uh, comes from. So
0: uh, this is a spread that shows on the left page an old photograph of a mountain range that, you know, snowy mountain range with a deep and dense forest underneath. And on the right page, I feature Caspar David Friedrich, the German romantic painter's painting called A Wanderer Above a Sea of Fog and it shows a man standing on a mountain looking into a valley from behind you only see him from behind and the the valley is basically filled with fog so you can't actually see what he's looking at exactly but you as the viewer or as the reader look with him into this abyss or into the past or you know that's that's uh, up to the to the reader to decide Um, And on the left page, I feature this definition of the word Heimat, which I'm going to read. It says that uh, it's taken from the comprehensive German Brockhaus Encyclopedia, and it says that term which defines the concept of an imaginarily developed or actual landscape or location with which a person associates an immediate sense of familiarity. This experience is imparted across generations, through family and other institutions, or through political ideologies. In common usage, Heimat also refers to the place, also understood as a landscape, that a person is born into, where they experience early socialization that largely shapes identity, character, mentality, and worldviews. The National Socialists use the term to associate a space of withdrawal, in particular for those groups that we're looking to identify with a simplistic template for psychological orientation.
1: And then after such a technical, in-depth description, on on the page right next to it...
0: So on the opposite page it says, how do you know who you are if you don't understand where you come from?
1: And these questions seem to be... Exactly what's driving the entire book.
0: Exactly. So um, because I felt and continue to feel so culturally disoriented as a German, it makes it hard to, you know, to define who you are in a way, who you can be. You don't have that comforting cultural framework, emotional framework to latch on to that makes you feel safe and secure. And um, because you grew up questioning your origins to a certain degree as a people – uh, or your or your past. Um, I think what what's important to recognize is that uh, what we are made of is the past. That the past is not actually a thing of the past. Um, the past is continues to live with us, and we have to confront it. And um, that will also obviously have an effect on who we think we are as human beings.
1: And that painting. Do you think a lot of Germans would recognize that painting? Is that a really popular yes, one.
0: it's a it's kind of a classic painting in Germany, but it's also uh, actually a motif that I kept on finding while I was going to flea markets looking for old photographs that I thought could tell me something about German cultural identity. So I I went to German flea markets over the course of, I don't know, 10 years, and I collected photographs that I thought featured recurring motifs. And one of these recurring motifs were people in landscapes from behind, looking out into, you know, into the open, you know, it was, it could be mountains, it could be fields, it could be rivers, it could be forests. But I keep on finding this particular almost archetype of, you know, portraying a solitary figure from behind looking at a landscape. And to me, it's a very powerful thing. And uh, it also had a very symbolic character in my book, because to me, it means looking back from a distance at your past um, and trying to make sense of it.
1: And of course, people that look at the book will see you've repurposed it yourself and It on the cover. When did you know that was going to happen?
0: Um, I think probably during my conversations with the American publisher about what the cover should be. And again, I I felt like it was probably one of the images that most symbolically represented my act of looking back and facing the past uh, was going to be to show myself from behind looking at a landscape. Uh, In the American edition, I feature a drawn image of myself from behind looking at a photograph, a photograph actually that was taken in 1900 that shows the the Black Forest. And for some of the foreign editions, I used a drawn landscape that has a sketch-like character that I I, I try to indicate that um, the idea of belonging will always just remain A sketch or, you know, a vague thing Mm. that we have to continuously redefine over time.
1: It reminded me of the last line of that definition where it says people looking to identify with a simplistic template for psychological orientation. In other words, they're looking for some kind of story about who they are and where they came from, something that's simple and graspable and, and hopefully positive.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in this instance, it was referred to more as a negative thing that, you know, that's what the Nazis did. They tried to provide that template. And of course, that template was exclusive to a certain kind of person and not accessible to a different kind of person. And again, this is something we see all over the world. In you know, uh, in in addition to also America is this idea that you are un-American if you don't believe in a certain worldview, or if you contradict a certain political movement, you are, you know, you are labeled as un-American. And in fact, cultural identity should not be something defined by one particular person or party, or it should be able to be defined by everybody individually. Um, And it should also be something that is not static or exclusive. And I think images also play a very, very big role uh, in shaping those notions of cultural identity.
1: As I read the book, I saw that impulse in you, that longing for home, that longing to belong, that desire for heimat, and also a recognition that that's a dangerous proposition too. So this is what stands out to me about the book is it's talking about how this longing and this need can be turned to such unbelievably horrible purposes But here you are, you still have that kind of a longing and still kind of need. You're still pursuing something like that, hopefully to a better end.
0: You know, I think what's important to recognize is that longing to belong is a natural impulse. It's, you know, probably even a biological impulse. I think everybody wants to belong to some group that they feel understands them and that, that you yourself understand. Because it gives you this sense of security, And so uh, there are people that claim, you know, these days that you can, I mean, even the Airbnb website says you can make your home anywhere in the world. And I think it's just not as simple as that. I think cultural belonging is formed to, I mean, at least in my experience, a lot in your early years. I think where you grew up, and how you experience that environment, you know, the the way the landscape looks, the food you eat, the the way your language sounds or the music shapes your worldview really, really deeply. And you can't always escape from it. And I think uh, at the same time, you want to have that sense of belonging. And so again, one of my fears was that the book could be read as me trying to basically say, you know, well, I deserve to have a home too. And, you know, let's let's move on but that's not that's not the point in fact um the point of the book was never to overcome the feelings of guilt or to stop you know investigating what happened uh in our country but to try to make it possible for both to exist at the same time you know i think we should in any country we should be able to look at the past to face the atrocities any country, you know, has committed, to face the atrocities our country has committed while at the same time feeling like we can express sincere love and affection for that country and celebrate its culture. Mm. And I think this is something that most countries struggle with. In the case of Germany, it was, um, you know, we didn't celebrate our culture, but we did face the atrocities committed by our country in the past. And I feel like in America, the opposite is true, that there's a lot of celebrating going on, um, which is also important because people come from all over the world and you need to have a common denominator somehow. But at the same time, uh, there is a sense that if you reflect more critically about slavery and racism and so forth, you you won't be able to love your country as much. And why shouldn't you? I mean, I think both should be possible at the same time. And uh, I think the book is trying to at least raise these questions, but it's not trying to raise beyond the guilt.
1: And it also shows the danger of that nostalgia, which can become a toxic impulse as well, you in the process of Researching for the book and preparing, you joined an online forum that was discussing the Axis nations and found some disturbing, really disturbing nostalgia there.
0: Yes, I researched certain platforms that were quite creepy for me, but I I felt like it was important for me to actually also know what's, what's going on, you know, what kind of people are out there having all kinds of conversations. Another thing that I was really facing was with the choice of images, I really needed to be very careful when I chose, for instance, old photographs of landscapes. And when I paired such photographs with texts that spoke about German loss, for instance, that it wouldn't come across as uh, sentimental. I think that would have really been the worst thing that could have happened is for a German to talk about the war, war from, you know, with a sense of sentimentality. So in choosing those images I had to make sure that um the text and the images worked well together and did not convey the sense of yeah nostalgia because that's that is a, a term that I as a German have have a problem with.
1: And you've seen people on these forums talking about hairstyles and boots and these specific artifacts in a way that It isn't just curious about history, it seems very overly interested in Nazi artifacts, for example.
0: Yes, I mean, whenever I have to do uh, work on, you know, illustrating uh, the Nazi period, and I Google, you know, Nazi uniforms, I would say that 50% of the images that come up are of contemporary people from all over the world wearing Nazi uniforms in some sort of reenactment, you know, situation, or worse, uh, some secret celebration of that time and that group of people and it's it's very disturbing to see i mean that's why it's so important that we learn about history in depth because um you know we we have to avoid this kind of fetishization of um of yeah nazism
1: that's nora krug she's a german-american author and illustrator Her visual memoir, Belonging, A German Reckons with History and Home, was chosen as best book of the year by the New York Times, The Guardian, NPR, and others. It's a very excellent book. She's also an associate professor of illustration at the Parsons School of Design in New York City. Nora, I was speechless when I came to the page where you include writings from your uncle when he was a little boy. And you mentioned this before, but now I'd like you to really describe these exercise books. When I saw these, it was chilling because I recognized the the handwriting and and artistic skill of a child. And and what this child had written was just astonishing.
0: Yeah, when I was a teenager, I came upon a number of exercise books in the old uh, cabinet that my parents have in their living room. And uh, they are the exercise books of my uh, paternal uncle, who was a child when the Nazis came to power. And so he learned a lot of propaganda in school. And as it was customary at the time, um, he illustrated a lot of those essays that he that he wrote in his book. And when you leave through these exercise books, it's really a chilling experience because you uh, see these beautifully hand-lettered essays together with illustrations of swastikas. And there's one little drawing of a book that says Mein Kampf on it, but also caricatures of Jewish men. And what was so strange and difficult for me as a child was that I didn't know this uncle because he was finally drafted into the SS and died at the age of 19 in Italy as a soldier, and these exercise books were the only thing that I had uh, that reminded me of him, you know, that spoke to him and his existence. I mean, they were the only proof of existence alongside with a handful of photographs of him. And again, this is this this conflict that you experience uh, growing up in Germany is that you, you know, you want to know something about your family members, you are a family, but then this is the only thing you can go on, and what do you do in a situation like that? How how do you, do you how do you find define yourself as a as a family unit, when there aren't these positive heroic stories that are passed on from generation to generation, but you know shameful stories? What does that mean for your understanding of who you are as a family?
1: And you lock in on this story in the notebook called The Jew, a Poisonous Mushroom, and this becomes a motif in the book as well. Maybe just take a quick second to explain what that story is that was in this child's book.
0: This is an essay that he wrote uh, that compares Jews to poisonous mushrooms. And I believe it's a story that's based on a book that was actually published by the Nazis at the time that maybe the teacher asked them to retell. I, I had no idea what the assignment was for this particular essay. And alongside of this essay, he drew you know, uh, pine trees and poisonous mushrooms with faces and also uh, a caricature of a Jewish man. Another thing that I found really striking was that um, you can actually see that the teacher marks the story, uh, you know, he marks the grammatical mistakes, and he gives a B for the content. It, It was just, you know, what he grew into as a child. At the same time, it was important for me to to clarify that, uh, you know, even though he was too young to really understand Nazi propaganda, I really deeply believe that he was old enough, I believe he was 12 at the time, to understand that Jews are not like poisonous mushrooms. You know, he had probably, there were Jewish children in the village where he lived that he played with. And so again, yes, he was indoctrinated, but he was also a human being. You know, who should have known at that age that writing a story like that is, is a harmful thing to do?
1: And you show that 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 recurs. You have a picture of your mother wearing a costume dressed up as a poisonous mushroom. And that this was a thing. This poisonous mushroom was a thing. And also on the cover, I wondered if it was related to the jacket that you depict yourself wearing on the front. I noticed you have a a red jacket with white spots, which matches these poisonous mushrooms. And I wondered if that was deliberate.
0: I use the poisonous mushroom as a recurring motif because it has a deep cultural symbolic uh, meaning. It's, you know, a symbol of good luck in Germany. But then again, it had this terrible other meaning that came uh, across in my uncle's um, essay. And so again, it has this this contradictory nature. And how do you live with this contradiction? And it's funny, because a lot of people ask me about my the jacket design of, you know, the jacket I'm wearing. <laughs> On the book cover, but I actually was not conscious when I created the image wow. uh, that I was replicating the pattern of the poisonous mushroom. In fact, I think the early draft uh, used green with white dots uh, as the the color for the jacket. But I don't know if that was a subconscious thing that I did. But uh, I I like the meaning of that. Wow.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your grandfather. One of the things that you're doing throughout this book is searching for one of your grandfathers. You talk a lot about. Both sides of your family history, but the plot that I felt drawn to, especially, was the one about Willie, your grandfather, and you remember things that your mother told you about him. And there's a passage that I'd like you to read here. It's it's the one that's next to the pocket watch. Um,
0: My mother grew up in the age of oblivion. She was born in 1946 in Karlsruhe, my hometown. All that played on German television in the 1950s were escapist romance dramas set in alpine and black forest landscapes. When she was 16, she discovered a left-wing magazine about the Holocaust in a garbage can. She had already learned about Germany's atrocities at school, but the photographs in the magazine were the first ones she had ever seen of the camps. Terrified, she confronted her father. What did he say? I asked her when I was a teenager myself. I don't think my father was a Nazi. He told me he didn't like Hitler because of the way he screamed all the time. I remember once overhearing a conversation my parents had with friends over coffee. Nobody knew what was happening to the Jews, they said. But six million sounds a bit exaggerated.
1: And then you have a picture there. Uh, That story is placed over a beautiful image that you've colored and done some wonderful things with. But it's this photograph of your grandparents, Willie and and Anna in in 1952, the line that really caught my eye here was when your mother said, I don't think my father was a Nazi.
0: Yes, I think it was a classic thing that my grandparents' generation did not talk much to their children about their involvement under the Nazi regime. At that time, it was still really a taboo. That has changed a lot. I mean, my parents' generation tended to talk a lot about uh, those issues with with us. But there was not much said in my parents', uh, parents' households on the subject. So my parents had no idea what their parents' political position or involvement uh, with the Nazi regime might have been,
1: and you're using these images to tell this story. On the next page, you have a picture of this grandfather, and you've cut his face out and and put some words there. You're you're kind of signaling to the reader that who he really was has been obscured by time. You're trying to find out who this man is, and and so you've you've cut his face out, and this becomes, it seems to become a passion for you to find out. What your mother just didn't want, a parent just couldn't bring herself to dig more into. She says, I I don't think he was. She didn't want him to be, obviously. But you seem driven, like, actually, I don't want him to be either, but I want to know.
0: Yeah, I think there are several reasons for that. I think that um, it's always easier to investigate your grandparents than your parents, I think. You know, as a child, you're... Mm -hmm. Uh, very closely connected to your parents. um, And I think it would have been harder for me if he had been my actual father. The other thing, though, is that um, when my parents first learned about these things, there were many uh, documents, archival documents that were not made public uh, yet. So some of the things that I found, my parents could have never found, and the internet didn't exist. So I found out a lot mm-hmm. of information by going online and my parents didn't have the technological tools to do so. But it's also true, I think, that most people of my parents' generation pretty much you know, ended the questioning after their parents told them that you know, they weren't involved, that that kind of ended the conversation and there, there was no digging deeper. I think that's something that's definitely changed in my generation.
1: Certainly. And, and you, you're taking on multiple roles. You're an illustrator, you're an author, you're a memoirist. You're also at this point become sort of an investigative journalist and you're finding these documents which you incorporate into the book. And this is really what makes the book shine is the way that you make it's, it's sort of scrapbook quality. But something as simple as a street address takes you down a really dark path. You find this street address that leads into a discussion of of Kristallnacht, one of the most terrifying nights uh, of the war.
0: I'm a little bit of a hobby detective. I like, you know, snooping around and especially in archives, I feel like you can find so much information. And I was almost obsessive about trying to find the tiniest scrap of paper that would say something about my family. Uh, I mean, my family was obscure, you know, there was nobody prominent in my family. So I depended on, on whatever I could find and... I went into my hometown's archive and I looked through the old phone books um, and just seeing these names come alive and seeing some of the Jewish names that then suddenly became one category in the phone book. You know, here's a list of the Jews living in your town and, and then suddenly the Jewish names disappear completely. I mean, the whole history is written in those phone books. And so I looked, I I unfolded an old map that was in the back of the 1938 phone book. And I looked at where my grandfather's office was located. And what I hadn't realized before was that it was actually located right across from the synagogue of the city. And only by looking at this old map was I able to see that. And so I realized that he was very close to the events that, I mean, physically close to the events that unfolded during Reichskrist, I mean, so-called Crystal Night, um, you know, the term that the Nazis coined, the the November pogroms is the historically correct term, uh, you know, when the synagogues in my hometown were burned down. And yeah, I, I just it kept on making me wonder, you know, what was he doing at that time? I mean, it was in the evening. So he was probably not at his office at that time. But He would have, I mean, involuntarily, at least, he would have seen what happened the next day. He would have seen the burned out building. Um, So then I researched eyewitness accounts from that time. And um, based on the accounts, I came to new conclusions uh, about what he might have or might not have seen. It's
1: a powerful part, Nora, because I want to say you really let readers into the history there by using imagination. Imagination is all you can fall back on at this point. You've gotten these documents, you've gotten this information, but it can only take you so far. And then you can say, well, maybe he did this or maybe he felt like this. Some Germans felt like this. Maybe that was like him. Maybe he was like this. And so readers are really introduced to the complexity of possibilities for Germans at the time where it's it's not this simple story of bad Germans, Nazis and jew's victims it's all kinds of different people and all kinds of different possibilities and and you can't really nail it down when it comes to your grandfather at this point there's so many possibilities you're getting so close to it but you still can't nail it down
0: yes often people ask me so what did your grandfather do during the the war under the regime and the the truth is that it's it's incredibly difficult to really know because unless you were a high-ranking nazi whose life has been very thoroughly uh, thoroughly, um, documented or or, or a resistance fighter. You know, most Germans were so-called followers, they followed along Uh, But this could have meant all kinds of things. A follower could have committed mass crimes. A follower could have helped save lives. I want to say, too, when you say follower, you mean this is like an actual category. This isn't just like a a word
1: you're using. Like they actually would categorize people according to guilt, according to their complicity, right, as as a legal way to address what happened in the past. And follower was like a legal category. Yes, the
0: Western allies, um, you know, they issued questionnaires that every German over the age of 18 had to fill out and they had to write about what they were up to basically under the Nazi regime. And my grandfather had to fill out one of those too, and I found it in the archive in my hometown. And again, it was a very chilling experience to open this document because it had probably been dormant at the archive for over 70 years. And here I am looking at the original forms that my grandfather filled out with his fountain pen it was almost as if he was talking to me and he was finally answering these questions I've had ever since I've been a teenager about what did he do during the war. And so based on what answers you gave in these questionnaires, you were ranked into five different categories that spanned from major war criminal to innocent, basically. And in the middle was this term follower. Or um, and that's the category that I think most Germans fell under. But again, it could have meant so many different things. It could have meant you'd committed terrible crimes, or you could have saved lives. That's why I felt it was so important to investigate my grandfather's life in particular, but there's only so much you can, you can go on. There's only so much information that I, that I could gather that I realized that the conclusion of the book was not to find out everything about my grandfather's life under the regime, but to come to terms with the fact that there are certain unknowns and certain fictitious stories and that I need to live with that fact.
1: I want to say the way you crafted it was absolutely brilliant. I felt... As I'm turning these pages, the tension, I I felt like you brought me to that archive. I felt like I was sitting there with you because you've got the documents in the book. And as I'm turning, the, you're talking about turning the pages and looking for where he would identify his party affiliation, for example. And there's that moment. And I'm I'm not going to spoil it for listeners. I really want people to go read the book and find out what happens in that moment. I don't want them to know. But as I'm turning the page to see this answer, I just want to thank you for inviting me into that moment of reckoning with something from the past because when i think about my family history for some reason if i if i were to find out something like that it, why 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 is that so difficult like why does that matter to us so much <laughs> why would it really matter to you you're not your grandfather
0: because I think the narratives that we tell each other and that we pass on over generations really make up our sense of who we are as people. And, you know, I feel this on Veterans Day every year when people here say, oh, yeah, my grandfather fought here and there, and I was so proud of it. And, yeah, my grandfather also <laughs> fought in the war, but mm. I'm not proud of it, and I can't celebrate this day, and I shouldn't celebrate this day. Yeah. and. Uh, I can't draw from these stories that give me a sense of familial belonging and pride and connectedness, even in my small family circle. And I think I think that's why it's hard to face these truths, because they unsettle who we think we are as families.
1: Your book combines art with history, with genealogy, with confession, with imagination, but it also seems radically personal. Did you have any second thoughts as you were creating this book, it seems very personal, and you're publishing it to the world.
0: It's funny, because I'm not usually somebody who goes through the world and tells everybody how I feel and what I think. So I'm not really exhibitionist in that way. Um, But the drive to tell this story and to investigate it and to tell it to myself, really, was so strong that I almost didn't think about that while I was writing the book. I just felt like I could deal with that later. Um, and now, of course, there are sometimes awkward moments where I uh, meet somebody who basically knows everything about me and my family, and I know nothing about them.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like right now, for example. Yeah. But
0: But um, I don't know. I somehow don't mind it. I feel I feel good about the fact that I faced my family's past, even though it was uncomfortable. And um, I somehow have no... I don't know why, but I have no problem sharing it. Um, and also, I mean, what I came to understand... Uh, by talking to audiences around the world, really, is that there's always a point where the book is not understood as my family history or the, the history of Germany, but that every country, it, it, it has a universal message, which is that any country should face its past. And so when I do interviews in Chile, you know, the their relationship to the military governments uh, comes up when I talk to Canadian audiences, there are always, you know, reflections on First Nation people. Um, and, and really, every country has has that guilt that, I mean, in, in Italy, the the book was very popular because a lot of Italians feel like the history of colonialism and Mussolini and fascism hasn't been addressed sufficiently. And um, so, in a way, to me, that, that makes it easier too, because I know this is not just about me you know, airing dirty laundry about my family, but it's really about more universal questions that could apply to any family in any country.
1: I appreciated that. Uh, I think your book is a wonderful example of honestly reckoning with the past, incorporating the difficult with the good. I, I also wondered, are there things that you still want to know about your history? This book's pretty comprehensive when it comes to uh, your grandparents. Did you have Unanswered questions when you finish the book that you wish you could have included there?
0: Yes, I mean, at the very end in the uh, epilogue, I include a photograph that I found right uh, as I had completed the book already, and the publication was scheduled and everything, um, Of uh, that shows a group of social democrats, which was the liberal party in Germany at the time, and also the Nazis' strongest political enemy. So they were taken prisoner in my hometown and brought to a concentration camp, one of the early concentration camps in 1933, not long after Adolf Hitler had come to power. And it shows their arrival at the camp, these men, group of men surrounded by, you know, other men in uniforms with very spiteful facial facial expressions. And it's an original print of a photograph of that event that I found in the old shoebox in my parents' cabinet where they store the family photographs. And I had seen a similar photograph in the archive months before, a a photograph showing the same exact thing, but a few seconds before. So there's a, a slight difference in movement, which again makes me think that the print I found is an original, it's not something that was printed for propaganda purposes. Right. It's also not a um, you know, juicy in quotation mark image enough to have served propaganda purposes at the time. So I don't know why my grandfather owned it. How did it end up in this shoebox? You know, and 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 that made me really curious and that's something that I would like to continue to explore, but I have I have not found any answers from the archives yet. I am I'm thinking of trying to track down descendants of the photographer who maybe has taken the photograph and and see if I can get more information on that.
1: Well, it sounds like the project in some ways isn't done for you. Then how did doing this book change you as a person? I mean, this is something that you would publish as a professional, as an artist, as part of your career. I mean, you're an associate professor of illustration, but on a personal level, how did doing this project change you?
0: I mean, again, uh, the goal of the project was not to overcome these feelings of Shame. I mean, I, I just have them. In any case, I can't just brush them off. Um, but I think what what it helped me do was, uh, you know, by facing the, by facing these feelings of of guilt and by facing my family's past, I feel in a way I can I can live better with it. Uh, you know, I I feel like I I have done the work that I needed to do. And as you said earlier, it it also helps inform me, um, inform my decisions that I will make in the future uh, as I live here, you know, my contemporary life. Um, I mean, we make decisions on a daily level, uh, decisions that actually have consequences for other people in the world, somewhere in the world. You know, the clothes we buy, where they're made, the meat we eat. All these decisions we make on a daily basis have political and personal consequences for others in the world, and I'm trying to be more conscientious of those decisions, and I think the book helped me be more conscientious about those things.
1: That's Nora Krug. She's Associate Professor of Illustration at the Parsons School of Design in New York City, and today we're talking about her book, Belonging, A German Reckons with History and Home. I cannot recommend this book strongly enough. This is one of the best books I have ever read.
0: Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's very kind of you.
1: Thank you, Nora. We'll be right back. This is Taylor
0: Petrie, editor of
1: Dialogue. I want to tell you about the Dialogue Podcast Network. In addition to great audio content you'll find in our feed, this collection is made up of shows by Latter-day Saints who wish to bring their faith into dialogue with larger streams of religious thought, like Mormon News Report, which takes a deep dive into topics pertaining to LDS culture, or Beyond the Block, which centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Other podcasts in this network include Gospel Tangents podcast, Words Fall In, Face in Hat, and Scholars and Saints. For links to these and all the other amazing content Dialogue has to offer, visit DialogueJournal.com. And while you're there, consider donating. Your sustained generosity is what enables us to continue our mission of facilitating dialogue in a spirit of learning and understanding. Thank you. We're back with Nora Krug, she is author and designer and illustrator and, and everything else of the book Belonging, a German reckons with history and home. All right, Nora, one of the reasons that I invited you on the show is because I wanted to recommend this book to everybody I know. This is kind of like a recommendation show if I bring people on. I I want people to check out these books. I love a good book recommendation, and so I let you know before we met that it would be your turn, and this segment is called Best Books. So I wanted you to tell us about a book that changed your life or a book that influenced your work or a book that you think would be interesting to people. So I'm going to turn the time over to you to talk about a best book or best books? There are
0: so many that it was very hard for me to come up with one, but I thought I'd choose one that relates to my book directly, which is The Diaries of Victor Klemperer. Victor Klemperer was a language scholar in Germany, and he uh, lived through the Nazi time uh, as a Jewish-German man uh, married to a, a Christian woman. And um, he chronic- chronicled uh, this experience of living under the regime as a Jewish man at the time, Uh, in his diaries. And um, I can really recommend reading those diaries because they really give you a sense of what everyday life was like for someone like him. And also a much more complex perspective on that experience than we often get, you know, in in Hollywood movies or or other platforms, uh, because it's a very quiet book in a way. um, And it just talks about his everyday encounters with friends or friends who turn out not to be friends anymore or people who ended up standing by him and his family. And it's uh it also shows the progressive and very quiet um but persistent change that that Germany underwent and gives you a sense of how um a country can can slip down the abyss basically step by step and day by day. So I, I really recommend his diaries.
1: That sounds like it would be a really good partner for this book. Remind us again the name and author.
0: The author's name is Victor Klemperer, and the book is called The Klemperer Diaries, nineteen thirty-three to nineteen forty-five.
1: OK, great. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes and on our website and send it out on social media, too, so people can find that. But Nora, thank you so much for joining me here at Fireside. I really, really love your book and really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thank you so much. I did, too.
1: Fireside with Blair Hodges is sponsored by the Howard W. Hunter Foundation, supporters of the Mormon Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University in California, and also by the Dialogue Foundation. It's a proud part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. Check out the show notes in your podcast app or at the website, firesidepod.org. You'll find a complete written transcript of this episode and more good stuff about Nora Krug's book, Belonging. Also a link where you can purchase the book. Fireside is going to reach as far as you help me take it. It's as simple as leaving a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It would also be kind of amazing if you could post a link online saying something that you liked about it. Recommend it to the kind of friends that you know will really appreciate the conversations that we're having here. I'm also here to chat with you online about the show. You can follow me at Pod Fireside on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Fireside's recorded, produced, and edited by me, Blair Hodges, right here in Salt Lake City. My production assistant, Kate Davis, created the transcript. Fireside's theme music is by Faded Paper Figures. Special thanks to Christy Franson, Matthew Bowman, Caroline Klein, and Kristen Olrich Hodges. I'll see you in two weeks on the next Fireside. I'll be saving a seat for
0: you.